You are listening to the Catholic Recon Podcast, testimonies from Catholic reverts and converts. I'm your host, Eddie Trask. Don't forget to leave a review and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Catholic Recon Testimonies from Reverts and Converts. I'm your host, Eddie Trask. This week's guest is Deacon Lou Aaron, who is a chef, clearly a deacon based on the name. And also, I guess specifically as it relates to being a chef, there is, and we're going to have him get into it, but there's something so beautiful about the passion for good food, making good things, the beauty behind that, and also the beauty of the faith. But uh, with that, Deacon Lou, first of all, thank you for being on the show. It's, a, it's an honor to have you here. Well, well, thank you. It's an honor for me to be here. I appreciate it. Um, you know, that's what the faith is all about, is about sharing. And, and a lot of people don't realize that, that in order to grow in faith, you need to hear other people's stories and so you can relate and, and uh, grow in your own faith. And it, it's really enjoyable to share your faith. Don't yeah, be afraid that, to share your faith. That, that I appreciate that very much. I've said that on a few episodes. Um, then a lot of people now <laughs> have said, I'm not interesting. What I would happen to me was not interesting. And I said, well, there are people currently on the path to Catholicism, and they would say the exact same thing. But if they find someone that has a similar quality or some parallel story, uh, I, I obviously believe in the impact of that. Um, with your, with your journey, I believe, yeah, in fact, I know, just like me, you were raised Catholic, and then at some point, yeah, walked I, away, like maybe, say, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I did, I did, I just walked away, I, there was nothing that the Catholic Church uh, did to me, or, you know, something bad happened, none, none of that happened, I, uh, I was raised Catholic, altar boy, 12 years of Catholic school, good family, good Catholic family, and I just, I just became part of the world. You know, that's, that's a common theme with cradle Catholics is that, that we really didn't learn our faith. And, you know, the foundation was there. And eventually that's what brought me back. I think, I think that had a lot to do with it because, uh, you know, we get, we take stuff for granted so easily in our lives that, that we don't appreciate it. And I think growing up Catholic and, 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 the tradition and the rituals and all that stuff that I just took for granted, you know, deep down there was a burning in my heart all through those years of darkness that I went that, that I need to come back home. And if I hadn't had that, you know, obviously they're, they're God, you know, God calls each one of us, but, but I chose to live in the world for about 20 years and, you know, the Holy spirit came back and, and, and yanked me out of that darkness I was in. And uh, I, I left the church in 1980, when I graduated, I, I went to Bishop Kelly High School here in Boise, and I, I, uh, I you know, had a had a, uh, a yearning for cooking early on. I, I got a job at a restaurant downtown when I was 14 years old, and and I just worked the summer because I was a freshman in high school, so I just worked the summer as a dishwasher. And but I saw all the chefs and the cooks in the kitchen and thought, boy, that looks pretty cool. So the next summer, I I went back again and the chef, you know, said that you're a great dishwasher. I mean, you're, you're really good. You know, it was very organized and he loved how I left the, the dish area because the dish area is kind of a dirty area. You know, you get pots and pans and I was, I was just sludging away back there. And, 
And he just, I, I took pride in what I was doing. So he saw that. So he yanked me out of the dish room and, and put me in the kitchen in the pantry area. Well, after about a week in the pantry area and about a week after cutting my hands up because I had to cut crab legs every night at this restaurant and I didn't know what I was doing. And I would go home with just cuts all over my hand. I, I begged the chef to put me back in the dish room because I was, I was like, I don't want to do this. This, this sucks. <laughs> but he, he said, uh, he said, no, 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 no. You just be patient. So he put me in the pantry and then I did, I mastered that. And then he put me in saute station. Then he put me in broiler and then he put me in the bakery and then he put me as a breakfast cook. So he moved me around every, every area in the kitchen. So I really just fell in love with cooking before I was even 17 years old. And I, I said, Oh, this is what I want to do. So he made me, he made me a chef's apprentice and I went through, it's a four-year national program, apprenticeship program for chefs, but I, I, uh, it took me five years because I, I traveled, but I, in the process, I also, I had, a, I fell in love with cooking. But I also fell in love with alcohol because in the restaurant business, you, you're around alcohol all the time. And, you know, you get off work, you go right to the bar and you start drinking. Well, I was underage. I mean, I looked mature for my age, but, but the cooks, you know, slid me drinks. I, I remember the very first time I got drunk, I was, I think I was 14 or 15. The cook at night handed me over a Kahlua and coffee and I you know I didn't realize it was alcohol in it and I just got totally drunk off of it and I, you know it was like wow this is a whole new world for me and and from that point on I just started drinking and that's part of the big reason why I left the church is because I was living in two different worlds and I uh I really became a uh, hardcore drinker through the through through my 20s it makes me think of um didn't anthony bourdain right it was the biggest seller kitchen confidential i believe mm -hmm. yeah. I, I didn't read it but i if i remember correctly it was detailing those with that lifestyle what comes from the kitchen correct correct me if i'm wrong if you know about oh that. yeah no it yeah. does it, it definitely does i mean it, it, it revolves around drinking i mean you ask anybody who's worked in a kitchen that that's what it is. I mean, you, you, uh, you get off work, you've worked a hard shift and you go have a couple of beers. And then those couple of beers for me turned into a case of beer and, and, you know, we'd be up all night drinking. And I remember many a times where I fell asleep on a butcher block table in the kitchen at this restaurant we worked at. Cause I got so drunk that I just went back in the kitchen cause I had to open for breakfast the next morning. So wow. I'd get drunk until so like it was more convenient to just stay there and yeah. wake up and then yeah. start the next shift. Yeah. 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 And I, and I got really good at it because, you know, I had a natural, uh, natural ability to cook. I mean, I, there, you know, I remember, you know, people say words, don't mean too much but they mean a lot and they form you as you go through your life and I remember the chef when I was 17 saying you know Lou in this business you either got it or you don't got it and you got it and that really popped me up like okay well I got it so you know this it it prompted me to to pursue cooking so I uh I did that and became a certified chef when I was 20, 22, 23. Um, and I traveled all over the place. I went to Georgia. I went to Texas. I went to Colorado. I worked for some top chefs. I, I worked for Wolfgang Puck and Aspen, but it wasn't my lifestyle. I mean, I was an alcoholic, but they were into drugs in, this, in Aspen. I mean, Aspen was all drugs. And I was like, this is crazy. It was, so a, I didn't last it was up. It was up a notch from. Yeah, it was, well, the, it was the rich man's, uh, uh, 
altered yeah. mind game. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't do it because I really never got into drugs. I, I, you know, you experiment with once or twice like, okay, this isn't for me. But I mean, alcohol is a drug. So I that was my choice. So but I didn't last very long in Aspen. So I, I, I spent three or four years in Texas and and, uh, you know, I could hide my drinking because I, I could cook really well. So I, I could hide it. I could drink all day long. And I was a, I was a pretty happy drunk. So I did fine. Um, but uh, there came a time, probably 1984, 1985, where I, it was the same cycle. You know, as you drink, you, you get up and you start, you start drinking and you drink all day and then you go to bed and you get back up and you do it again. It's a vicious cycle. And I, I, uh, I started praying. I never left God. I never, I, I never not believed in God. I always believed in God. And I, uh, I talked to God a lot. Every night, probably for 10 years, every single night, I would go to bed, I'd get in bed and I'd say, Lord, please let me stop drinking. And the very next morning I wake up and the first thing I did was start drinking. Um, I, I worked in a restaurant in the eighties that had a, had the hard liquor on a gun on a little, you know, a little shot. It wasn't in bottles. They were in guns on the, on the fountain, on the fountain. It was like a fountain drink. So yeah, I just go pour, I go pour myself a seven and seven at seven in the morning and, and just be on my way. And, but I never forgot that. And I also had this very significant dream through the 1980s, and it happened probably dozens of times where I would be in this really dark room and it was just pressure packed like it was going to blow up. It was just pure black, dark. And there was an incredibly bright light underneath the crack of the door and I could see the door swelling and it was like this bright light was trying to get in. And in my warped mind, I thought it was the devil trying to get in. I mean, but there I was, I was living the life of the devil in darkness and my stupidity was that it was obviously God wanting to get into my life and I wouldn't let it. And that, that dream uh, kind of scared me a little bit because God was telling me, you need to quit living this way. And I, I wasn't. So in the meantime, I met my wife in 1985. I was chef down at uh, uh, top of the Hoff restaurant downtown in Boise. And it was a, uh, it was a nice restaurant, top floor, and my, my wife moved here from Eugene, Oregon, and she was a hostess, and I, you know, I was an arrogant chef, and she hated my guts, but eventually I, I charmed her over, and and we got married in 1987, and, but the problem is that she married a drunk, and she didn't realize it. I mean, I was hiding it from her. I was drinking every single day, and she, she didn't know it, and uh, any alcoholic you talk to will tell you there's an enabler, and, and I didn't really know what that meant until after I quit drinking, but she was in enabling me because she was in denial that I was an alcoholic, but I would drink every single day. Um, so on April 26, 1993, I came home drunk and my wife was sitting there uh, on the couch looking at me and she says, Lou, what are all those beer cans doing behind the fridge? And the, there we had a fridge out in the garage that had a cubby hole behind it. And I, what I would do is I would get drunk, come home, sit in the living room, be watching TV or whatever. And I would just get up, walk out into the garage. I could chug a beer in about three seconds. And I would chug, put the beer can behind the fridge in the cubby hole. I'd just throw it back there. Well, after three or four years, the cubby hole filled up and I wasn't paying attention to it. And there was probably three or four or 500 beer cans back there. I had no idea. And, oh and she was, she was back there in the garage one day and she just saw it, it was full of beer cans back there and that's what she looked at me she goes what are all those beer cans doing behind the fridge and then the holy spirit just took me over 
because I, I wasn't in any conversation about saying, oh, I'm an alcoholic or I got a drinking problem. I never, we never had that discussion. And the Holy Spirit just took me over and just said, I looked at her and I said, I'm alcoholic. And she said, no, you're not. And I said, yes, I am. And I, I sat her down and I just laid everything out what I'd been doing. I'd drinking a case of beer a day. I was, I would be on Long Island iced teas by noon. I, it was, it was bad. And, and she was shocked. And so, and I, so from that day forward, I went to work the next day at the restaurant I worked at and I told everybody, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm done drinking. And they just laughed at me like, yeah, right. You're done drinking. And, you know, when you're drinking that much, you would expect withdrawals and, and, sure. you know, you get a plan to go to AA meetings and all that stuff. I never had one withdrawal symptom, nothing. It was like the Lord answered my prayer finally and just took it all away. I never went to one AA meeting and I haven't had a drink since April 26, 1993. That's and it, it's, it's totally God taking me over and, and just saying, you're done. This is it. And, and it was just off that one prompting from my wife. And it was obviously the Holy Spirit doing that. And so we, <clears throat> my wife had married a drunk. So for the next six months, we went through pure hell because she didn't know who I was. And I didn't really know who she was. And we'd been married five years and had two kids already. I had a three-year-old and a five-year-old. And it was really hard for six months. And you don't think about that when you quit drinking, but it was, it was really hard adjusting because I was a completely different person. Um, but we made it through and, and we obviously we were better for it. There was some trust issues with my wife after she had found out what I'd been doing, that, that there was obviously some things that she thought, you know, I, there's certain smells associated with alcoholism that you associate with, or just through your life, you smell something and it reminds you of something. So I would be coming home from work or something. She catches smell and she thought I'd been drinking and we get in a big fight. And I was like, I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking. So after three or four years, that went away. Um, but once I stopped drinking, we, we were very materialistic people. We, we, we just had to have all the new stuff, all the new toys. You know, I'm a, I'm a head chef. So I have to have the prestige and all this stuff. And, and, but we did start talking about going to church. I said, let's go to church. And my wife did not, my wife was not raised in any specific religion. Her family had been Seventh-day Adventists. And, you know, they went to church once in a while, but they never practiced their faith. So, so my wife was really uh, nothing. So we talked about going to church. Uh, my wife's sister is a devout Baptist. And uh, say that again. I didn't catch that. My, my wife, my wife's sister is a devout Baptist sister. Okay. And, Got it. Yeah. And she, uh, they were going to a church every Sunday and my wife, you know, was like, wanted to be a part of that. So she kept saying, well, let's go to church. Let's go to church. Well, we talked about it for three years, <laughs> going to church and, uh, November 5th, 1996, the Holy spirit took over for us, came and burned our house down. We lost everything. Um, yeah, we lost everything. We lost our pets, our car. I mean, all the clothes, everything. We lost everything. Uh, we had a wood burning stove, like fireplace. Yeah. And we, had, we hadn't had a fire in a week. And my wife would take the ember, the ashes out of the, to clean the fireplace out. And we'd wait a week or two before we took them out, but she took, took, put them in a bag, put them out. And we had a little gravel pit away from the house that she would go sit them in to make sure that it would be okay. Well, my six-year-old daughter was sick that day. She was in the house and my wife went to take the ashes out and she heard my daughter scream in the house. So she put the ashes down and went back in the house and forgot about the ashes. And the ashes were six feet away from the garage. Well, six hours later, caught the whole house on fire. 
So I would say, make sure your fire, your ashes are out. But we, uh, we, that was a tragedy. I mean, it was, it was incredibly hard on our family. We were, you know, we had our, got our house rebuilt for six months. We were displaced. We were in different rental apartments and my kids would have nightmares every night about the fire. And, and I wasn't at home when it happened, but the firemen said that they had like two minutes to get out of the house or they would have blown up. There was a backdraft going on with the, with the doors. And so they were very lucky. Um, but it really, we look back at that moment of our life as it was so terrible, but it was the best, best thing that could have ever happened to us because we lost everything. We lost all those material goods. We lost all that stuff, but we still had our family. And we realized that, that, you know, this is a wake up call for us. And so my wife said, we're going to church. And I said, yeah, let's go to church. Well, I didn't know the difference between churches. I was, you know, I was raised Catholic. I thought everything was Catholic. I thought it was like, everybody does the same thing. I had no idea that there was difference in the churches. Yep. So, so we go, we go check out the Baptist church. We go to a Baptist church and we walk in there and I, 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 I was in a foreign nation. I thought I was like, what, what is going on in here? There was a, a 45 minute sermon. And there was karaoke thing up on the wall with reading the string and the words and we were singing and, and then there was a plea for money. I mean, we'd be in, he'd be in the middle of talking and he'd stop start praying for a new car for the youth group or, or whatever. And, and I, uh, and at the end there was an, there was, you know, we call it an altar call. There was, there was obviously no altar up there, but they call an altar call and ask us all to come up and give our hearts to Jesus. And I just didn't, I didn't feel right. And I, we went two or three times and I said, I said, this just doesn't feel right. And she goes, well, you were raised Catholic. Let's go to Catholic church. I said, okay. Cause she didn't really know there was any difference either. So we, we, uh, we started coming to our lady of the rosary here in Boise and, and the church itself, the sanctuary hadn't been built. So they were having mass in the parish hall, but the very first mass we went to, we were walking out and my wife says, you know, I just felt like I was at home. And I went, Oh, I said, good, good. I said, that sounds good. Well, we'll start coming here. So for the next three or four months, we, we were going every Sunday. I was not receiving communion, although there started to be a burning in my heart of wanting to receive communion. I know I had to go to confession, but I was scared to death to go to confession. I wasn't, I wasn't even on my radar. I was just, well, we're just going to come. And all this time, my wife was saying, uh, you know, I don't mind coming to church here, but we're not, I'm not becoming Catholic. I said, well, that's fine. You don't have to become Catholic. I wasn't forcing her. Well, we go three or four months and then her parents caught wind that we were going to Catholic church and I and it unleashed a torrent of questions and concerns with her family about our, our path to Catholicism. And they were still practicing like, Adventists. They were, I mean, they, no, they, were they were not. They, okay. No, they were not practicing Adventists, but they had been trained. They, they, they were, you know, they were in their 60s. So they, they knew what the Adventists believe and the Adventists, you know, I, we, we had to have a family meeting at their house one night. I'll never forget it. As long as I live, <laughs> they were taught that the Catholic church takes the kids away when they're 13 years old and takes them away from the family. They, you know, the Pope is the antichrist, the Catholic church is the whore of Babylon, all this stuff. And I was like, what? and I had no idea what they were talking about. I was like, what are you talking about? I, I mean, I was raised Catholic and, you know, they didn't come take me away when I was 13. So we kind of quelled some of those fears, but they still were very anti-Catholic. I mean, incredibly. I'll, my my mother-in-law looked at me. She said, you know, if I knew that you were going to become Catholic, I would have never let you marry my daughter. Oh, and I was, my goodness. I, wow. I was I was shocked. I was 
I was, I had no idea somebody could hate something, something that bad. Um, but over the years, it, it's well, it went away. You know, I'll, I'll tell you later about how, what with the relationship with them. But, but uh, the day before RCIA started, my wife came up to me and says, I think I want to go to RCIA. I went, oh, okay, that sounds good. And uh, so I said, I'll go with you. So we started going to RCIA. And that was really the, the springboard for me because I started learning about Catholicism that I'd never experienced before. And the other uh, springboard for me was my wife's sister. She started questioning me on everything. You know, why do you call your priest father? Why do you guys pray to statues? Why do you, what's purgatory? All these questions, I had no idea at all what she was talking about because I'd never been challenged before. Because I was raised in a Catholic environment with Catholic school and all that stuff. So I yeah, there'd be no reason. Yeah, exactly. No, Zippo. No. So she started drilling me and I was, I was pretty embarrassed. I was like, I, I, hadn't, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I don't know. Let me get back to you. <laughs> so so I, I thought, I said, heck, I got to go buy a Bible. So because, so, you know, Baptists are big Bible believers. So I, and I kept hearing that. And, and she had given me this little track called the Romans Road. And it was just a little, you know, little paper pamphlet. It was all on Book of Romans and how you get saved. Okay. And I thought, and it made sense to me. I'm looking at it and go, that looks good. Looks pretty good. Looks pretty simple to me. And, um, but I knew it was, it was too easy. So I went and bought a Bible. And then, so my mom had been praying for, you know, 15, 20 years for me, like St. Monica to come back to the church. Um, so I called my mom right away and I said, Hey mom, I went and bought a Bible. And she says, wow. She goes, well, what Bible did you get? And I opened up the cover and it said authorized King James version. And she said, you bought a Protestant Bible. What do you, what do you do that for? And I said, well, is there a difference? I said, what's the difference? I said, it's a pretty Bible. It was a nice big hardbound Bible. And, uh, Good price. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, I, I still have that Bible and it's brand new still. I haven't really opened it. I, uh, I realized that it was a Protestant Bible, so I went and bought a Catholic Bible, and I just started to become, you know, I love the term Scott Hahn used, he said it, you know, 25 years ago, but he said, he said he's a Bible junkie, you know, and, and that's, that's what I became, I became a Bible junkie, I started getting, I could not, I was reading it every day, I was, it was, it was interfering with our marriage, because my wife was like, what are you doing, I, I just was in the Bible every single day, because I was getting challenged, and I was finding answers and that it was very exciting to me. Someone questioned me on purgatory or priest father and all this stuff. And, you know, well, it was right at the beginning of the internet. So we didn't, I didn't have a lot of internet in 1997. It was, I mean, it was there, but I, it wasn't like it is today. So I went and started buying every book in the world and I bought books on every single religion. I bought Episcopalians, Methodists, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Presbyterians, Luther's. I bought, I bought everything. I bought Luther. I bought all of Luther's works. I bought, I bought Joseph Smith's book. I mean, I was, I, so I started devouring it, trying to learn and everything was pointing me back to the Catholic church because I was, you know, there, I was realizing there was a big difference in religions and, and Catholics worship differently than everybody else. And I, I, it, it hit me front and center. So, and that's why I love the Bible because it was giving me all these answers and it just, it also stemmed a new belief in Jesus that I never experienced before. When, when you read the God, cause I was, I started reading the Bible. A lot of people 
when you read the Bible, you say, okay, I'm going to sit down and read the Bible. And they begin in Genesis and they start reading it and they get lost. And, and that's what I did. I started reading Genesis. And then by the time I got to Leviticus, I was like, I, I don't understand anything that's going on here. So luckily I got, my uh, sister said, well, Scott Hahn and Jeff Cavins put out this new thing called the, I don't remember what it's called now. It was, uh, it was this, there was their first Bible study back in 19, they put it out in like 93 or 94, but it was a, it was a video on EWTN video series that we bought and I, I went through and, and that really helped me a lot because you know how Scott Hahn talks about covenants and really made the Bible in perspective to me and the chronological order is such a huge deal so I, I read the historical books first and that put everything in the context to me of, of of how the Jews put their scriptures together and why it wasn't in chronological order is that they put their books in importance of the prophet you know this this person's importance we're going to put it first and then yeah so, so that helped me out a lot and and so i you know in the footnotes in the bible i i didn't know idea what footnotes were and i started reading the new testament and 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 learning about jesus or when jesus said said, said something or when paul quoted the old testament i'd go back and i'd get the context of what he's talking about and it just exploded my brain and I, it was just it was a lot of fun it was a great adventure like the bible study was called so i I, uh, so I got on that path and going through RCIA, my wife continually said, I'm not becoming Catholic. And then by the third scrutiny, she looks at me, and says, I want to become Catholic. <laughs> so, so that caused more rifts in our family, but, but she was going through with it because she, she fell in love with the Catholic faith too. And so on Easter vigil, 1998, she got baptized and confirmed. My kids got baptized and confirmed Beautiful. and we got our marriage blessed in the church. We had like the grand slam on Easter vigil, 1998. It was, it was just fantastic. And that's great. Parents, that's a great way to put it. The grand slam on the, well, it was, it was like, wow, this is like it, you know, everything. And, and we yeah. were so happy, but her parents were there at mass that night. And that was the first time they'd ever stepped foot in the Catholic church and the pain on their face. I'll never forget the pain on their face. It was, I mean, the rituals and all the stuff they were, and, you, and that was like the highest mass you can go to Easter vigil. I mean, for their first mass. So they were, her mom was crying through the entire mass. I mean, it, it was, and she wasn't tears of joy. It was, she was, she was worried. And, and uh, so the next few years I calmed her down. And so, but, and I had a relationship with her mom. Her mom had a, a debilitating disease that she got when she was 40. And her mom passed away a couple of years ago, but but I would always say to her, I said, Donna, I'm saying Hail Mary for you. And it became, it became a joke within the family that she'd always, when she'd have a, a health issue, she'd call me or she'd go, you need to start praying to Mary for me because I need some help. So it wore off a little bit. And, you know, and I had talks with, with her dad and, and he, he said he, he, he had friends through his life that were Catholic. And he said that to him, the Catholic church made, made logical sense. So I thought, okay, well, he's, he's coming around the corner a little bit. So, so that relationship mellowed out. Her sister, it never really mellowed out. We just quit talking about it because she's set in her beliefs and I'm not, I wasn't proselytizing her. I just, anytime sure. someone would ask me a question, I would answer it. And, and we have a really good relationship now and, 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 you know, we're good. Yeah. I, uh, I remember when I became, when we got through Easter vigil and everything, you know, my hunger for the scriptures brought me to start challenging Protestant pastors because I had, I had some people at my, at my work at my restaurant that I, uh, 
that were pretty strong Protestants. And they would, we'd get in arguments or debates at work and they would go to their pastors. And all of a sudden I'd be, get, I'd get an email or a phone call from one of these pastors around Boise and they started asking me questions. And I've, so I, so I just started getting into debates with, I mean, I was probably carrying on six or seven debates with these pastors in Boise for probably six or seven months. And they were, they were nasty debates. And I still have every one of them. We were, we were exchanging email back and forth. And I looked back at that. I thought it, it didn't produce any fruit at all arguing with somebody. I mean, it just never, it was like, I'm proving my point and they're proving yep. their point to me. And it yep. just never, it did help me fine tune and help me learn my faith a lot better. But I look back at that and I, I, I was just, I was a jerk. I mean, it was basically, I was being a jerk to these people and they were being a jerk back to me. And, and it, they didn't, I didn't change their mind. And I still go back and I check up on these guys. Uh, and this was 20 something years ago, 23, 23, 24 years ago. I look yeah. back and see where they are today. Some of them have completely left their faith completely. They're just wandering. I, Cause you know, the internet, you can find people. So I go back and look at these seven or eight guys that I was debating with and there, and some of them, two of them were ex-Catholic. And, you know, as you probably know, ex-Catholics are the biggest anti-Catholics out there. Absolutely. And, that, that on YouTube video after video, someone will <laughs> say, where are they from? And they'll say they were Catholic. And now they're trying to preach against what they understood the Catholic faith to be. So yeah, go ahead. Exactly. 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 Yeah. So I, there's two in specific that were in Boise and they went and planted their, I mean, I like this church planting. They, they, they kind of bugs, rubs me the wrong way. They said, go plant at a church, sure, sure, <laughs> but, sure. but they, they traveled around the Northwest planting churches and every one of them has failed. And I, I look at them and I'm thinking, I, I keep praying pray for them every day that they would come home because they're searching and it's right there in front of their face and they don't see it. And, and I, uh, I've gone through my life now looking at, at where God has put me. And, you know, in 1997, before all, I guess before the fire, before 1986, before the fire, you'd have never, you'd have paid me a million bucks to tell me that I would be a deacon in the Catholic church in 2000. 21 it would have never it was not even on the nothing with it was no no way nothing so i i started getting involved with rcia obviously i went through rcia so i started teaching rcia oh wow okay uh, on the on the bible i i i i just obviously people could see that i love the bible so i because i was talking about it all the time and i uh I remember an encyclical that St. That St. John Paul II, it was like 1991. I do not remember the name of the encyclical, but a, a quote stuck with me. And he basically said that the day that Catholics can quote scripture in their normal conversation with people, the world will change. We will change the world if we can just talk to people biblically without them even realizing it in, in the language of the Bible. And I do that now. And I did that. I started doing that back then. I, I, you know, I own a couple of businesses. So I would, I have employee meetings once a month and I, they're, they're Bible studies. That's what they are. But my employees don't know that <laughs> they don't know it's a Bible study. I'll uh, I'm great into entomology. So I'll, I'll pick a word and then we'll go down a path, you know, and pretty much guaranteed over the last 20 something years at our employee meetings, there's employees in there sobbing and crying throughout the meeting. And, and, you know, we talk business and I go over profit and loss statements and all that stuff. But but the key message is always a word that I I'll just give you one example is is character. 
you know, characters, big deal characters being watered down to nothing in our world today. So I, uh, I'll pick character and I'll, I'll, uh, I put the word up and I'll ask them, what does this word mean? And they'll say, well, you know, you know, it's your qualities or, or these words. So I'll break it down and, and, you know, the word character actually came from, uh, Nor it's a Norse word and it came from, it's an engraver's tool. It's where you would engrave and it would be permanent mark. So your character is your mark, it defines who you are. So I, I get on that path with them and, and tell them about that. Or teamwork, you know, the word team. What does that word mean? You know, we hear this, you know, there's no I in team, but that's kind of stuff. But I broke the word down. The word team means to tow, to pull, to pull your other, your partner up. It means to pull somebody up. So that's how I, I do. I pick a different word every month. And we, we're having one this Saturday too. Or, and I don't know what the word is yet. The Holy Spirit gives me a word to talk. But that's how you teach people. You don't, I don't get up there and say, I'm a Catholic and you need to become Catholic. I, I, I get biblical stud stories and I relate them in a, in a, in a, a way they can relate to it and understand it because we live in a broken world and and i know that it's been recorded how i hire people because you know when you get on this journey back to the church and you read the scriptures you know what is the gospel and, and that that question always asks me i ask people out of time what is the gospel to you what is the gospel and a lot of people don't understand what the gospel, what is the gospel? They don't understand what it is. Well, it's good news. Well, what is the good news? What is the good news that Jesus is trying to tell you to go preach? And a lot of people don't think, well, it's going to church every Sunday for an hour. That's not the good news. That is not the good news. Jesus went out and, and, and preached to the poor, to the, the, the rejected. I mean, you look at all the stories. He went to the people that were broken and Probably 2001, 2002, I started hiring broken people. I, I remember a guy walking into me, sitting down, and he was just distraught. And he had just gotten out of prison. Well, he had, he had not just gotten out of prison. He had gotten out of prison six months ago. And he says, I, no one will hire me. I cannot get a job. I'm a, I'm a convicted felon. And I never asked him what he did. I just said, okay, I'll give you a shot. And he ended up working for me for almost seven years. A great guy. I mean, great guy. I never asked this history or whatever. So for the last 20 years, we've turned both of our West sides. I mean, our other West side, we opened in 2012, but we do it both ways. My son and my daughter are running the restaurants now. I kind of, I, cause I'm working at church, but we, we have a philosophy that, that we are being Jesus to people. And that's basically how I raise my kids and say, you've got, you're put on this earth to serve other people. Yeah. It's about, you know, WIIFM what's in it for me, but it's not what's in it for me that is when you're young you see that and i related to the scriptures where jesus grabbed peter and you know do you love me peter do you love me peter do you love me peter and and then he says when you were young you used to dress yourself and do what you wanted to do but now that you're older other people are going to dress you and take you where you don't want to go and that's what really it's like okay as you get older you realize that jesus grabs you and takes you where you don't want to go. And I can go back through all, you can go back through your life and see these past. Well, I'm going to go do this. I've got this plan to go this way. And it never works out the way you planned it. It's, it's always different. And, and there's a, there's a purpose for everything in your life. And that's what we train our employees. And, and we give these people, you know, the, I don't know what the percentage is right now, but, but usually we're hovering around 75, 80% of our employees are either felons drug addicts alcoholics homeless you name it we've got the whole array there 
So it's, it's not one big happy family, let me tell you, because when you hire people like that, it is an extraordinarily tough, it's tough to do that because you, you're, you're basically being a counselor to these people. These people are really having struggles. You know, we, we got great success stories too, though. I mean, we, we, we probably 40% of our people that we hire actually make it. 60% don't. And, you know, it depends on the year, but, but, you know, we've had people die at our restaurant that are drug addicts that just fell off the wagon and actually died at our, at our place. So uh, we've seen the tragedy that drugs have, um, but we're helping these people and they see that and we're, and we are one big family. We're not so much happy all the time because that's a, that's a misnomer. It's just not, not real, but there's a piece about it that when you're, when you're having so many broken people in your restaurant that we're all in it together. And that word team really to pull each other up and to help them, you know, Pope Francis, I, I, I quote Pope Francis, where it's not so much, you know, lending a handout to a person that's down on the ground, you know, giving them money is you need to pick them up and get them going. You need to help them. And, and that's, that's what we do. We, we don't just throw money at something. We grab that person and we, we try to form them. You know, we've, I've, I think I'm, I think I'm up to like six or seven converts that have become Catholic since we started doing this. Then we got one great story of, of a six foot six, 350 pound guy, huge guy that I hired that very devout Baptist. And, and, he, first day of work, he comes up to me and says, hey, chef, I heard you're Catholic, so I don't like Catholics, so you don't talk about Catholics to me. <laughs> I said, no problem, George. I won't, I, won't, I won't say anything about it. And uh, this guy was gifted. I mean, I could, there was a sense, of, there was a holiness about this guy that he was a real rough guy, but there was a holiness about him that I can't really explain. So he came to me one day and said, hey, chef, we're studying the gospel of John at my church. I said, oh, really? I said, I said well, when you get to chapter six, let me know. And um, he said, okay. So he comes to me on a Monday. He says, well, tomorrow night we're doing John chapter six. I said, okay, well, here's a list of questions to give your pastor when you, <laughs> when you, uh, <laughs> when you uh, get, get to it. And, you know, they're obviously Catholic questions. I mean, John chapter six is, oh yeah, is the, the chapter, right? So I, he came to work on Wednesday and, and, and I said, well, how'd it go, George? And he goes, he couldn't answer one of your questions, chef. He couldn't answer one of your questions. I went, I said, oh, that's interesting. So I just left it at that. I didn't say anything. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, he came to me on Monday morning and said, I need to go to mass with you. I said, what? Are you, what are, you are you kidding me? What are you talking about? And he says, I woke up. I woke up at five o'clock in the morning. I turned on the TV and mass was on. And it just something told me I need to go to mass. And I said, okay. I said, well, that's good. Well, it was Palm Sunday week. It was, it was Palm Sunday. So he comes to our church on Palm Sunday. And I tell you, there's a whole, it was just this holiness around him. It was, it was, uh, it was, I can't explain it. So he sits with me and we're walking out and this guy, this guy was going to a church that prayed and sung in tongues. And he had the gifts of the Holy spirit. I mean, this, he was, he was into it. So we walk out of the Palm Sunday mass and he looked at me and goes, chef, he goes, that's how you worship. I went, Oh, really? I said, good deal. Well, he ended up going through RCA and becoming Catholic. Oh my God. <laughs> and he wanted to become a priest. Unfortunately, he had a heart attack and died on our property during a lunch rush. Uh, 
but he had so like, was he already received into the church by then? yeah he was okay. yep he had, he had already become catholic and he had been a catholic about a year and he um he was talking about the priesthood he had gone and i know he was talking to father camacho about the priesthood he was down at saint mary's talking and this is this was 15 years ago but he yeah. very holy guy he would he would come to our church and no one would sit with him it was weird he kept bugging he would sit all over the church and no one would ever sit next to him the pew would always be empty and there was just a holiness about him he couldn't figure it out and he would i've heard stories about uh, john paul when he would in his holy chapel celebrate mass and people would go in and they wouldn't see john paul yeah. but he would be face down prostrate and yes. you could hear him you could hear him groaning the groaning the prayer the groaning and that's the way george prayed i mean i would i would when i would go to mass and i could hear him groaning and it was it was just i'll never forget it it gives me chills just telling you about it just he would be groaning and he um he had gifts. I mean, he came, this is before he became Catholic. I, my wife had to have an emergency hysterectomy and I was freaked out because it was like, she collapsed at work and was bleeding badly. We take her to the hospital and it says, you got to have hysterectomy tomorrow. We got, we got to get this. It was bad. So I go to work the next morning. I had to go do some stuff in the morning, but I was stressed out and George comes to me at seven o'clock in the morning and hands me his piece of paper and I open it up and well, let me take, give me a backdrop uh, preview of what happened so Padre Pio is my saint Padre Pio I mean he's Padre Pio's come to me personally and I've had conversations with him and that's a whole other story to talk to you but oh he's I'm we very, talk for very, hours about that <laughs> yeah yeah he's he's really I mean he's he's very alive very real um but I, you know, his Padre Pio's prayers, pray, hope, and don't worry. Worry is yep. useless. God is merciful. I'll hear your prayer. Well, you know, I say that prayer all the time. I, I had said it for years. I mean, it was just part of who I was. I didn't ever, I never told anybody that. And I certainly didn't talk to George about that. Well, he comes in that morning, he comes and hands me this piece of paper and I open it up and it says, pray, hope, and don't worry. God will hear your prayer. <laughs> I went, George, where did you get this? And he says, some guy woke me up at four o'clock in the morning and told me to write it down and give it to you. And I went, holy cow. And it wasn't even in his handwriting. And I thought, man, a lot. So, yeah. So I was like, there's <laughs> Padre Pio right there. So then I knew right then it was everything was going to be fine. It was like, I just got this piece about me. It's like, it's going to be fine. That's the kind of guy George was. George was, uh, George just had that gift. It was, he was just in tune with, with uh you know he was he he passed over the thin veil that we we have around us he was just something else and uh you know i'll be at the west side working and he, and george had a certain smell to him and i'll be at the west side and i get this whiff of smell of george and it's been 15 years i still smell it and it's just crazy i'll uh tell you one more story on george of, of his ability and this just gives you hope and, and, you know, I hope your listeners or viewers understand that the communion of saints is very real. I mean, it is very real. And I sense their presence all the time. And, and you just have to be open to listening, listening and being aware of what's going on. We, um, I had a bookkeeper, uh, bookkeepers uh, that had worked for me. And her husband was my best friend that I had brought down to be a chef at a restaurant here. He, he, they lived up in Spokane and I moved him down here and he was, I was consulting for a restaurant here in Boise and, and I hired him and great guy, great chef. And he had gotten, 
uh, I was, he was, he got killed in a road rage accident on I-84. He, I was actually at a soccer game with my daughter in Nampa and we were, we were trying to get on the Franklin road exit to get back on the interstate and it was backed up for miles. So I backed up off Franklin exit and I started going down Franklin road and I get a call saying, John got, John's dead. And I went, what do you mean John's dead? And he goes, he got killed. And it was, he was the cause of the interstate being broken down. It was right there at the oh. birds of prey at the Meridian exit. He got rear-ended by a guy in a road rage. They'd been in a, a race on the interstate, you know, taunting each other. And the guy came up behind his pickup and hit him and he flipped out and got ejected from the truck and got killed instantly. Uh, that's another story right there. I mean, this just tells you that he was, a, John had been a falling away Catholic. I was teaching a returning Catholic class that, that earlier that year where he started coming to those classes. He got, he went to confession, went back to started coming back to church and he only been coming back to church three weeks when he got killed. So you, you look at, look at stories like that. Why did, why did that happen? Why did, why does that happen? So I, I don't know why it happens, but there's a reason for all of that happening. Um, so anyway, his wife, a couple of years later, his wife got really went the wrong way after he died. She, she got into trouble, into drugs and, and, and it had been about seven or eight years. She came back to me and said, can I, can I, you know, I've had a rough go of things. Would you hire me? And I saw I hired her as a bookkeeper. Well, she's working for me for like three weeks and she tries to kill herself. She drug ODs on drugs. I get this weird text from her. It was all mumbled jumbled. And I'm like, well, this doesn't make any sense, Tamara. What, what is this? And uh, find out that she had taken a whole bottle of pills and tried to kill herself. And she's at St. Al's. She's brain dead. There's, there's, there's no chance. They, they said she's, she's brain dead. She's, she's not going to make it. So they said they're going to pull the plug on her. It was like Wednesday. They're going to pull the plug on her at four o'clock on Wednesday and I, or two o'clock. I don't remember what time it was, two or four o'clock. So I'm, so that Wednesday, I'm sitting at the West side at my desk and I've got, you know, I've got some pictures. I've got a glass cover on my desk and I got a bunch of pictures underneath my desk. Well, George was so big that he, he, uh, he played Santa Claus at our Christmas parties. He was, you know, he's just a big guy. He was perfect Santa Claus. So there's a picture of him dressed up as Santa right by my keyboard. So I was sitting there and I was just praying for Tamara and I looked down and I saw George. And I just kind of chuckled. I didn't really think anything of it. I just, he, it was his, his picture. And that was about four o'clock. So I knew they were pulling the plugs around four o'clock. And then uh, I just went about the rest of my day. So I'm driving home about 6.30 that night. And my friend calls me and says, did you hear? Did you hear? And I said, did I hear what? He goes, Tamara woke up. <laughs> I, went, well, I went, what do you mean Tamara woke up? She goes, yes, she woke up at four o'clock. They pulled the plug and she woke up. And uh, he goes, but it was strange because she sat up in bed and screamed out, George, George. And I, I was like, George, what does that mean? And it just clicked in my head. <laughs> that at four, four o'clock, I'm looking at George on my desk in the picture of George, right? So I think I got to find out who this George is. So I, the next morning I went to St. Al's and I'm talking to Tamara. I said, who's George, Tamara? And she says, George, who, what do you mean, George? I said, yeah, did you, when you got up yesterday, they said you screamed down George. She goes, I don't know any George. And her son was sitting there and I said, do you guys know any George? And they said, no, we don't, we don't have any relative. We don't know anybody named George. So to me, 
that was a sign that that George was involved with that situation somehow. Because it's the same time, four o'clock, and she wakes up and she's brain dead, and she's perfectly fine now. This has been seven or eight years ago, and she's fine now. She totally recovered. <laughs> so I look at those stories with miracles. Those are miracles to me, and they happen every day to us. These miracles happen every single day, and we don't pay attention to them. And I, uh, I've got dozens of stories like that. Well, like you said about um, some of those former pastors, you said it's right in front of them, but they don't see it. These things are happening all around. You're just hitting so many points about being able to discern. And now uh, we can't get into, you know, which people have that gift and which do not, whatever. But there's this ability that all of us have to just have our eyes open. So I wouldn't even put it in the realm of discerning just do we pay attention and look for those things that are gifts, people that are gifts, things that are said, you just, you, you covered all of that. Right? Yeah. It's amazing. Well, well yeah. it is, it is a, it's amazing because when you get in tune with God, you know, I, re, I remember another, another, another sermon from, from uh, Pope John Paul when he, and I don't remember what he, I, I, I've, I'm just love. St. John Paul II. I mean, his writings are just incredible. And I don't keep track of every single one I read, but sure. he, he had a sermon once where he said, you know, we hear the, we hear the phrase all the time to open your doors to Christ, mm -hmm. you know, open your heart to Christ. And he said, that's not good enough. He said, when you open your doors, you rip the doors off the hinges because you rip them off. And, you know, and he was speaking in, in Italian. So it's just the way he said it. You, you rip the doors off. And then that, that lets Christ take you over. And that's what the gospel is. The gospel is not, is not just going to church and listening to the readings and, and, you know, being a, uh, being a cradle Catholic, you know, just going through the motions. You know, I, I, I talk about that all the time. I, I talk about RCA still to this day, you know, when I came back to the church, I didn't know why we did all this stuff. Yeah. I didn't know why we made the sign of the cross. You know, I started asking people because, to a lot of people, they don't, they, our Catholic, we don't know what we're doing. There's a reason every single thing we do at church has a purpose. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's the scriptures and the church just together. And I start, I remember, I'll never forget walking in and asking Catholics, why do we make the sign of the cross? And I'd get the stupidest answers. You know, I get <laughs> me, meaning is, it's just a ritual. It doesn't mean anything. Or I would, uh, you know, it's a sign of your baptismal. You're renewing your baptismal coming. Yeah, that's true. But the, the sign of the cross is a prayer. It's not something you make in the end zone after a touchdown or after you, you know, get up to baseball and you make the sign of the cross. You don't, that's not what it is. I started reading the church fathers and seeing that people were martyred for making the sign of the cross. So I cannot make the sign of the cross in, anymore without getting chills. I make the sign of the cross realizing that this is, that is the prayer of the church. That's how Christians recognized each other in the first, second, third centuries. They would make the sign of the cross in the sand. Read Tertullian. Read, read the early church fathers of how that, what the sign of the cross meant to them. And it puts more perspective and depth. And when you make the sign of the cross, you don't just do this and forget about it. The, the, the sign of the cross is, is envelopes the entire gospel, the Trinity, everything. And in the name of is an oath formula. You know, it's an oath formula saying you are possessed by God. And that's what the gospel is. The gospel is Jesus. Read the story in the gospels about Jesus. All Jesus is doing, he gave us a model to follow. And it is him reproducing his life in us. That's the essence of the gospel is that Jesus Christ 
we live his life and that's that's the purpose and every one of us really live his life and it's how we approach it we we suffer we we have to die we we have happiness you know jesus had all those feelings and all that stuff that we experience and our job is to wrap our arms around that crucifix and understand that there's a meaning in our life and it's to associate ourselves with him he gave us the model and when you understand that sense of suffering and that peace and that happiness that he had, because he went through all the emotions and he took on other people's issues. You know, Fulton Sheen brought up something that if you notice every time Jesus healed somebody or Jesus, like when he raised Lazarus from the dead or the hemorrhaging woman, yeah, he, he took on their pain. He, it says, it says in the scriptures and you don't catch it. It says he groaned or he snorted in spirit. Or he sighed. He wept. Jesus, Fulton Sheen said that when Jesus healed somebody, like when he healed that hemorrhaging woman, he took on her hemorrhaging. He took on her pain. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, he took on Lazarus's death. He took it on. So when we, it's just like in our ministry at the West Side, when we hire these people, we're taking up, we're, we're, we're suffering with these people. We're, we're taking them on under our fold and we're helping them understand life. And that's what life is. And you absolutely nailed it because a lot of employers would say things like, we don't need that burden, <laughs> right? Exactly. Or yeah. we don't need that potential toxicity or we don't need, you know, so that is fascinating. Um, I am absolutely shocked right now. I'm going to have to listen to this again. I, oh. <laughs> I cannot thank you enough for um, everything that you just spoke about. The ministries, the fact that you're, it's your son and daughter that are running the restaurants now. Yep. The fact that you're keeping that model going is um, admirable to say the least. So yeah. I just want well, to thank all, you. Yeah. We're, we're go welcome. ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You're, you're welcome. You're welcome. Well, we're yeah. all called to do that. We're all called to serve. We really are. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. And um, everyone, all, all the listeners, please share this. There is a lot to learn in, in this testimony, and I'd say these brilliant um, avenues that all connect to the same thing. So just think about it, ponder it, pray about this and what Deacon Lou just shared today, and uh, thank you all for listening. Yep. Until next God time, bless. God bless. Take yeah. care. See ya.